Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over on The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on the Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Well, look, if you listened to last week's episode, you know Drew uh, was headed uh, up to Park City, Utah, where he'd be covering the 2024 Sundance Film Festival, which, let me check, uh, okay, it's currently 37 degrees with a 70% chance of snow there. Eh. It's actually warmer there than it is here in Southern New Hampshire right now. It's, it's oh dear Lord, it's 18 degrees. Okay, I know. You miss Mr. Taylor, as do I. But the good news is, prior to heading out to Park City, Drew and I hopped on Zoom and were able to record an epic-length feature piece for today's show, where we then will discuss Lucasfilm Animation's Strange Magic. A weird little movie, uh, and we'll also be talking about that project's connection to Newt, the canceled Pixar production that was supposed to be directed by Gary Rydstrom. You're really going to want to hear this one, folks, because Drew actually got to sit down with Gary at the Strange Magic press event back in 2015, and, and Mr. Rydstrom shared all sorts of great behind-the-scenes stories. But anyway, that stuff is on the second half of today's show, but first comes the news, and as always, the news portion of this week's fine-tuning is brought to you by TouringPlans.com. Touring plans can help you save money and time at theme parks like the Magic Kingdom at the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida. So if you're looking for help when it comes to planning out your next excursion to Orlando, please check them out at touringplans.com. Okay, so let's start with a disappointing bit of news. Uh, for the past few weeks, Mr. Taylor and I have been talking up Soul's theatrical debut, which, for those of you who don't remember, uh, Soul is that Pete Doctor movie that was supposed to be released theatrically back in uh, 2020, but got tripped up by the pandemic. Mind you, uh, this Pixar-produced full-length animated feature eventually bubbled up on Disney+. Plus. I, I want to say it became available for folks who subscribe to the streaming service on December 25th, uh, 2020. Uh, it was highly praised by animation professionals and eventually went on to take home, well, both the Annie and the Oscar for Best Animated Feature that year. Anyway, the one thing that fans of this Pete Doctor movie said that they regretted was, well, they never got to see Soul up on the big screen. Um, Walt Disney Studios sought to finally remedy that by releasing Soul to theaters a uh, weekend before last, uh, the long Martin Luther King Day weekend, uh, where, in theory, uh, plenty of adults and kids should have been free to go to their local theater and see this Pete Doctor movie up on the big screen. <sighs> to be completely honest, that didn't happen. From January 12th through the 14th, a handful of people went to theaters to see Soul. How do I know this? Because this Pixar film came in 20th at the domestic box office. 20th. Uh, it was shown on 1,350 screens in North America 
and only sold $431,000 worth of tickets. Uh, This weekend, January 19th through the 21st, sold it even worse at the domestic box office. On those same 1,350 screens, this Pixar movie only sold 131,000 worth of tickets, which was a a 69% fall off in business. And um, I have been hearing all sorts of theories uh, that try to explain why Soul performed so poorly over its theatrical debut. Chief among these theories is that uh, this Pete Doctor film had been available on Disney Plus for over three years now, and them that wanted to see this animated feature already had. Um, I've also heard from a number of people that, and, and spoiler alert, <laughs> well, again, it's a over three-year-old movie, so if I, I, I guess there might be people out here who have yet to see Soul, but anyway, Joel Gardner, the middle school band teacher, voiced by Jamie Foxx, uh, dies just 10 minutes into this film by, by plunging through an open manhole in New York City. And uh, for a lot of folks, they supposedly consider this to be a depressing movie, one that they didn't necessarily want to take their kids to see up on the big screen, which is why they say they're waiting for Pixar's Turning Red, which will arrive in theaters on February 9th, and Pixar's Luca, which, uh, again, will be released theatrically on March 22nd instead. Um, have to tell you that based on what friends at Disney Studios have been telling me, given that Soul's theatrical release has only sold $845,000 worth of tickets during its uh, the first 10 days that it's been shown in North American theaters, which, by the way, doesn't even come close to covering what Disney spent to promote the special theatrical engagement, which was, uh, you know, just announced back in early December of last year. I, I have to warn you folks, there's supposedly been some talk of of tabling the upcoming theatrical releases of, of Turning Red and Luca. Now, um, I will say this much. Um, given that those two Pixar films have far more kid appeal than Soul, there's a lot more folks down in Burbank and up in Emeryville who are saying, Whoa, stay the course, go ahead with the theatrical release of, of Turning Red and Luca, because those will definitely sell more tickets than Soul. Um, but that said, I, I have to tell you, there's a number of folks these days uh, at Disney and Pixar who are second-guessing themselves when it comes to animation, and one of the reasons for that is is Disney's wish. Um, this Chris Buck and Fawn Viroth Sun Thorn film was supposed to be the grand finale of the Walt Disney Company's 100th anniversary celebration, but instead Wish seriously stumbled the box office, only selling 63 million worth of tickets total in North America. Overseas, better. Uh, they sold... 169 million uh, worldwide box office total of uh, 23 million. Uh, now, what's been interesting is there's been a number of folks at Disney who have tried to spin that amount, uh, you know, as a by way of saying, uh, see, Wish was a success. Uh, this film cost $175 million to make. So, with now $23 million, 
or excuse me, $233 million in ticket sales uh, worldwide. We're now over $50 million into profit. Um, that's not how Hollywood works. Um, the rule of thumb is you have to earn at least three times your production cost before you then begin to eke out a profit. So if you follow that school of thought when it comes to Hollywood accounting, Wish would still need to earn nearly $300 million more at the worldwide box office before it would then start to break even. <sighs> to then add insult to injury, when the nominations for the 51st Annie's were announced this past week, which are typically the precursor for the best animated feature nominations, at least as far as the Oscars are concerned, Dizzy's Wish was nowhere to be seen among the nominees. Now, mind you, Nimona, the Blue Sky Studios film that Disney opted not to make, which was then resurrected by Netflix, that animated film was nominated for eight Annie's, including Best Animated Feature. And um, also, it's worth noting here that Pixar's Elemental didn't get nominated for Best Animated Feature by the Annie's Nominating Committee. But that said, this Peter Som film was nominated for Best Effects, Best Character Animation, Best Character Design, and Best Music, not to mention uh, Best Production Design and Best Editorial. So six nominations in total, uh, none for Best Feature, but again, that, that that's recognition by your per peers right there, folks. Um, one of the other Annie nominations that, uh, one of the other only Annie nominations that Disney got was for its new Disney Junior show, Playdate with Winnie the Pooh, which was recognized in the best TV and media for preschool category. Um, this animated series actually debuted on Disney Junior back in August of last year, uh, 12 episodes of air to date with lucky number 13 piglet rabbit and the picnic debuting the day after this podcast debuts on Wednesday, January 24th. Now I know that there are a number of poo purists out there who aren't necessarily fans of play date with Winnie the Pooh, but trust me, folks, this Disney junior show is so much more preferable to blood and honey to the, the sequel to that, a Winnie the Pooh-inspired horror film that was released last year. By the way, Blood and, Thun uh, Blood and Honey 2 arrives in theaters next month, February. Uh, me, I'm just going to pretend that this movie, along with those two Mickey Mouse-inspired horror films that are now in the works on the heels of Steamboat Willie slipping into the public domain, I I'm going to pretend they don't exist. I, 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 I like my poo to be, well... Not homicidal. <sighs> Pivoting to another aspect of the Bear of Little Brain, did you know that this past Thursday, January 18th, was National Winnie the Pooh Day? Uh, I hope you all celebrated by having a little smackerel of something. Okay, I, I think that's going to do it for the news portion of this week's fine-tuning. When we get back from our commercial break, it'll be myself and Mr. Taylor musing over some strange magic. But first, this. And we're back. 
Okay, just a reminder that Drew and I recorded this, well, on a Monday, January 15th, Martin Luther King Day, and we used uh, the ninth anniversary of the theatrical release of Strange Magic, uh, which would be January 22nd, uh, to take a look back at this Lucasfilm uh, animation production. So let's give a, a listen to that recording now. Okay, folks, so um, for the feature for this week, Drew and I are going to talk about Strange Magic, which uh, I guess this is the ninth anniversary of the release of that Lucasfilm animation film, uh, Walt Disney. Everybody run to Disney for your commemorative <laughs> pins that I'm sure they will be selling on Main Street. <laughs> <laughs> with some weird uh, goblin on it <laughs> i know and, and and now one of the reasons we're, we're talking about this today is is uh, again drew you you were lucky enough to actually go to the junket for this and it, and it was in new york back in was it before it was released uh January 2015, did did you go back there for December or did you? Yeah, no, it was like early January. It was like a week before the movie opened or something. And okay. I can't, I, I believe it was one of those like, you know, favors to somebody that it was like, uh, you know, I went. But I, I love Gary Rydstrom, so of course I wanted to go. But it okay. was very, it was very funny to see uh, George Lucas kind of being shuffled around a Manhattan hotel um, looking like, what, what did I do? And how did I get myself in this position well no it's so interesting you say that because if we we go back to the origins of this project the story as it was explained to me is that george lucas wanted to create a movie for his two daughters amanda who was born in 1981 and katie who was born in 1988 and uh now did you actually get to talk to lucas at the event uh, no i believe he was there for the press conference um okay. If you'll recall, that was a time when press conferences were big thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh, but I saw him walking around. I mean, the only other time I ever encountered George Lucas was backstage at D23 in 2015. I guess that was that same year. And yeah. I shook his hand, and then I realized somebody later told me that he was a big like hypochondriac. So I probably should, shouldn't have shook his hand. So that, that they, they immediately yeah. took him back to the, 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 the what, the shower they use in... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Silkwood shower. <laughs> it's the Silkwood shower. There yeah. we go. All right. Anyway. um Okay. So now at the press conference or anything, did he talk about how long this had been in development? Because my understanding is they began working on this project in earnest in the year 2000. Uh, and... The way it initially, you know, George sort of walked it out to the people who were working on it uh, was he wanted to create a Star Wars for the female audience. Do you recall anything like that? Or No, I mean, that makes sense. And it makes sense that it was it began so long ago because I'm sure it was just hidden away in the Lucasfilm books. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure that it did not cost a lot to at least initially develop, but it has had a very interesting development history oh, oh absolutely and and again remember there are projects at, at 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 lucasfilm that took forever i mean if if we think about radio land murders or red tails or that sort of thing there were just things that that george keeps perking along and in in this case um you know george again wanted to make a star wars for the female audience and eventually took inspiration for this project from william shakespeare's a midsummer's night dream but 
What's interesting is, is George looks at, you know, what Shakespeare created and said, yeah, 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 we, we don't need anything about the, the, the marriage between uh, the, the Theseus and, and, and Hippolyta. You know, and, and likewise, the four Athenian lovers, those can go, and the six amateur actors who are, who are going to do the play before the marriage. And George throws all that out and zeroes in on the fairies, uh, the fairies who live in the forest and um, which I, I guess makes sense because, you know, he, he sort of touched on that, uh, in 1988's Willow. Um, but then it's, what's fascinating to me is who he brings in to help him develop this. Uh, we, we first have David, uh, Berenbaum. Uh, he wrote the, uh, screenplay for Elf as well as Disney's 2003, uh, version of the Haunted Mansion, the Eddie Murphy version. Uh, Irene Mechie, uh, who, uh, she also works on the screenplay for strange magic. Uh, and she was a, a big time Disney veteran. Uh, she, she did the screen, worked on the screenplays for the, the Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules as, as well as Pixar's brave. And I, I bring up Pixar's brave cause you just reminded me that for a time, someone else was going to direct this movie, right? Yeah. They had Brenda Chapman who was the first director on Brave come over and there was a very splashy press release, I remember, and it was basically like, I believe it was just called Untitled Fairy Project at the time. Okay. And yeah, and she had she did a lot of work on it, as far as I know. Yeah, in fact, what's interesting is she, if you drill down into the vocal cast for this thing, Brenda does the the, the voice of an imp on this thing. Uh, I mean... <laughs> And and also they the other gentleman who wound, actually wound up directing this Gary Rydstrom, uh, I want to say Mad Dave, uh, you know he also voices a character in this thing. But but again, um, Lucas's main collaborator on the finished version of Strange Magic was Academy Award winning sound designer Gary Rydstrom, who uh, also worked on the screenplay for this this animated feature from from Lucasfilm Animation. And I, I have to admit. What fascinates me about Gary is he got into directing animation fairly late in his career. I mean, the very first film he worked on as a sound technician was was back in 1984, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And this was just a couple of years as, after he'd come over to Skywalker Sound. Uh, he essentially, you know, got brought in by his mentor, uh, Ben Burt. Uh, who I guess he'd taken classes with at the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Art. Can and we talk about the fun Disney connection to the sound of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Oh, please, please do. In the minecart chase, right? Isn't it that they recorded uh, the train cars from Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and used them in the final film? I was trying. I was hammering on Google just today because, again, you know, I face it, uh, when, you know, Rydstrom started out, he was an audio technician, not a sound designer. And so there was a part of me that thought he must have been the guy they sent to the field. You know, he to must have been it. the guy you know, who <laughs> sat in there at midnight with, you know, the, the coaster cars going by to get that authentic sound. But um, anyway, uh, you know, Rydstrom rises through the ranks rather rapidly. Uh, at, at, you know, uh, in the biz and, uh, between 1992 and 1999, he and, and the team at Skywalker sound, they take up seven Academy awards for best sound and best sound effects editing. 
for uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Jurassic Park, Titanic, Saving Private Ryan. But but for me, Drew, what fascinates me is, you know, uh, is Rydstrom's love of animation. I mean, he's in with the team uh, from Pixar right from the very beginning. Uh, he does sound design for, I, it looks like all of their shorts except uh, and Andre and Wally B. I mean, he's he's listed on the credits oh, wow. for Lu- Luxo Jenner, uh, Red's Dream in 87, Tin Toy, uh, the, you know, their first Academy Award winner, likewise Knickknack. Um, and then when Pixar starts doing feature-length films in, in 95, there's real Toy Story, Rides from uh, comes along for the ride, uh, and what's interesting is this then brings Rydstrom to Walt Disney Animation Studios' attention. They they get him to do sound design on James and the Giant Peach in 96 and Hercules in 97. Pixar uh, lures him back for Bugs Life uh, to do sound design on that in 98 and then Toy Story 2 in 99. And it's just the guy then ping-pongs back and forth between Pixar and, and Disney in 2001 where he first does sound design for Atlantis, the Lost Empire, and then sound design on Monsters, Inc. And um, now, <laughs> while this is going on, he's still continuing to work on high-profile live-action films. I mean, in 2002, he does Minority Report, and but at the same time, he, he's he's trying to do right by the folks who, who brought him into the business. So he's, he's back at Lucasfilm doing sound design on Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. But this whole time, Gary is getting more and more enraptured in, in animation uh, and, you know, just loves watching how these films come together. And right after he finishes doing sound design on Finding Nemo in 2003, Rides from Meets with uh, then Pixar head uh, John Lasseter and pitches him on the idea of uh, an animated short that Gary himself wants to direct. And Lasseter loves this idea so much that that he gives Gary a shot. And so that short, Pixar's Lifted, uh, it debuts at the Chicago International Film Festival, October of, of 2006, gets released theatrically with Ratatouille in June of 2007, very well received. And you remember this one, right, Drew? The, uh, you know, it, it's the the basically an alien kid going for his driver's test in a ufo yes you know what i especially loved about this movie is you could tell a a sound designer you know was the guy behind this one of the biggest laughs out of the thing is you know the kid is is in front of this giant control that wasn't the control modeled after a sound board you know it was all the sure it was okay all the dials and knobs and so the kid is in front of it trying to look for the, just the right knob to sort of what uh, lift the human figure out of uh, out of their bedroom, and you know, and as the kid reaches for the knob, the instructor, the guy who's grading him on the test, whips out a ballpoint pen and clicks it, and uh, that was one of the you know again, it's a sound joke, you know that that that, that the kid gets so stressed out when he hears the click of the ballpoint pen. It's like, all right, a sound guy did. Well, you know what's interesting about that short too, Jim, and animation fans will love this, is that, you know, shorts are always pushing the envelope. They're trying out new technologies. Sometimes they're recycling things, though, and the blob aliens in that short were the original blob aliens from the first version of WALL-E. 
No. Yes, and and oh. not to plug the other show, but I, we had Gary on because he he did uh, Ghost Protocol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, with, with, and with he, Brad it, Bird. Yeah, with Brad mm-hmm. Bird, and he said, "Oh my God, you're the first person to ever put that together." Because I yeah. asked, I just straight up asked him, "Are were those the Blob people from the earlier version of Wally?" And he said, "Yes." Well, now uh, to bring it full circle, though, that again he works with Brad Bird on Ghost Protocol, and of course, you know, uh, Lifted was paired with Ratatouille uh, when it went yes. out of the theaters. But 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 again, there's a Ratatouille connection to Lifted as well, because isn't the human figure, the kid, or the, the the human who's in bed, who they're 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 using the uh, I, 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 the beam to pull out of the bedroom? Isn't that Luigi? Um, oh, is it? Yeah, you know, I never, you know. I never. But you're right. I mean, the silhouette is exact, and the hair and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so again, no, I love that that they recycled the blob people from from Wally, and again, and, and it's Luigi who's getting battered around the bedroom because <laughs> the kid can't control the force beam. All right. So anyway, lifted is so well received that Lassiter decides to let Rydstrom direct a feature at Pixar. So in April of 88, less than 10 months after Ratatouille had been released to theaters, Newt is announced. And and this project, which features a, a, a screenplay by, by Rydstrom, you know the story of this thing, right? Or, or what they were going to do. The right? only thing I know recently, and this was again in, in our, our Light the Fuse interview with him, was that he said that at the time, which I did not know, that Pixar was actually looking at two different production pipelines. And that one was supposed to be a lower budget pipeline that could get movies out quicker. They would cost less and they, you know, could could be a little bit more experimental. And so Newt was the inaugural project for this Uh, initiative. No. Yeah. So they were like, okay, we're just going to do a little romantic comedy. It's about uh, Newt's and it is going to be somewhat. You know, I, I heard people describe it as sort of Woody Allen-ish, you know? Yes, yes. Okay. But yeah, but it just it just did uh, it didn't come together. And also there was another mo- animated movie that came out that was very similar. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. The elevator pitch, uh, so to speak, uh, for Newt was a mismatched pair of blue-footed Newts. Uh, one half of this duo is a male Newt, and again... Uh, Remember what, what what Drew just said. You know, again, this is a Woody Allen romantic comedy. So, uh, this character's name literally is Newt. Uh, has spent his entire life inside of a terrarium, locked away in a laboratory. Loves his life. The other half of this pair is a female Newt called Brooke, who used to live in the outside world. And these two could not be more mismatched. Again, uh, you know, Newt is perfectly happy with his, his his life behind glass, where Brooke is desperate to get outside again and be free. And where this gets complicated, at least according to the human scientists who work in the lab where Newt is, and, and Brooke are in, in this terrarium, these two are the very last male and female pair of blue-footed Newts in the world. So if this series uh, species is to survive and eventually be reintroduced to the wild, they have to mate at some point, and which is pretty tough to do with all of these human eyes watching. Uh, not to mention that initially Newton Brook have zero chemistry, have literally no interest in one another. So I love 
well, you know, I, 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 I love the info you just shared about the notion of small romantic comedy, because when you hear the size and shape of that story, yeah, it's, it's mostly set in the laboratory. It's mostly set in the terrarium. But they did get out, I think, at one point, because we've seen art of other animals that they encounter. This is true. In the this wild. Is true. The yep. other funny thing that he told us <laughs> is that it's very, it was very hard to figure out a story where the climax of the movie should be the two characters consummating their there love. Go. There you go. <laughs> in, you know. a, in a... P- G or PG rated Pixar movie. So that was a big narrative sticking point that nobody could really figure out. (laughs) Well, you know, I, 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 again, uh, somebody at Pixar once told me that the very thing you're talking about, that they had the board for, um, you know, for Newt. (laughs) And actually one of the last images from the film is that shot of Nala from uh, Can You Hear the Love Tonight? You, you know the one where Nala gives Simba the eye in the middle yes. of the song, right? <laughs> yes. And it was the notion of, okay, put that up on the board, and some point we have to figure out how Brooke makes that face. You know, because the audience immediately goes, oh, all right, this is about to happen. But, okay, so on paper, sounds like a promising premise for a Pixar movie. Newt gets announced April of 2008, uh, is then supposed to be this animation studio's big release this summer of 2011. But then in early 2010, uh, word begins to leak that Newt is having some story problems. And as a direct result, its release date gets pushed back to the summer of 2012. Now, what's interesting is Cars 2, which was originally supposed to come out in summer of 2012, it gets moved down to the summer of 2011 to fill the hole that Newt's postponement uh, has left in, in Disney's r- release schedule. Thank God you can't tell in the finished <laughs> film. Oh, I was about to say, you know, given the way Cars tur- 2 turned out, you almost wish that John Lasseter, who who co-directed that that uh, Cars sequel with Brad Lewis, uh, they had stuck with the original release date, uh, the summer of 2012, and spent that extra year trying to figure out the story problems. Um but all right, and now speaking of story problems, the way it, it's been explained to me is that Newt supposedly had the very same story problems that Disney's Tangled and Moana once had, which was how do you make things dramatic and visually interesting if you have two characters in the exact same setting for much of your story? I mean, think about it. In Tangled, you have... Initially, Rapunzel trapped high in her tower where only Mother Gothel, Flynn Rider, and, and Pascal are, are interacting with her. And uh, eventually, the way they solved that problem is they had Rapunzel leave the tower and go on some adventures with Flynn Rider. And only in, what, the last act, uh, put her back in the tower with Mother Gothel for their for their showdown. Uh, Moana, on the other hand, and I remember talking with um, uh, the producer about this and to the effect of that, you know, must have been interesting when you had two characters on basically a 30 foot square raft for the entire film. And she's like, yes, yes, thank you. You know, that, you know, you know, that, that the fact that we had Maui and Moana and Hey, Hey, uh, in that, that space for so much of the movie. Yeah. It got really challenging. The, the way they fix that problem is okay. We send them places, you know, or, we stage scenes at night or in the morning or, you know, we make it visually interesting that way. 
Whereas with with Newt, the whole premise of this movie is for the species to continue. These two have to mate, and and they hate one another, and 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 it and the gag constantly is that you have these human scientists. And by the way, did you ever look at the the vocal cast that they had? For this thing, I mean, they had Dabney Coleman. I don't know if I've ever seen that. No, tell me who it was. Well, yeah, they, they, they had this amazing uh, set of character actors voicing, you know, the scientists looking in at Newt, and, and they were sort of the comic relief outside of the terrarium. And as Drew mentioned, they explored the idea of, okay, we, we let them out in the world and we bring other animals in. and But again, the second act largely stayed visually static. And what was interesting is in an effort to write the ship very quietly, Gary Rydstrom was pulled off as director of Newt and Pete Doctor for a time, uh, you know, was put in charge, but even Doctor couldn't fix it. And as Drew mentioned at the top of today's show, that the other thing that, that there was a ticking clock that uh, Blue Sky was working on an animated feature that had a very similar story, Rio. Uh, which had the very last known male of the Speaks uh, macaw species, uh, species uh, had to mate with the very last known female of that same species. And th- that was moving at warp speed through Blue Sky Studios and was going to arrive in theaters in April of 2011. And, and in spring of 2010, Pixar had to admit the inevitable that, that Newt just was not working. And so they, they canceled the project, and as a consolation prize, Rydstrom was given the opportunity to direct another short uh, for that animation studio. It was Hawaiian Vacation. Uh, that was the Toy Story tune that, again, again, another cruel irony here, that was paired with Cars 2 and went out into theaters uh, in June of 2011 in the exact uh, slot that Newt supposed to was to go out in. And um, now mind you, uh, Rydstrom is keeping his hand in as a sound designer for uh, live action. In fact, as, as Drew mentioned at the top of the show, uh, he, he worked on Brad Bird's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And in the same window of time, uh, worked on Spielberg's War Horse, uh, which by the way, both also went out into theaters in 2011. But Gary really still wanted to direct a full length animated feature. And then, Strange magic just kind of fell into Rydstrom's lap. And now, what do we know about Chapman's involvement here? I have to assume she came on board after uh, she was pushed off of, of Brave. Yeah, it was so that it, she was on it, I guess, for a, a short period. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Because, yeah, there wasn't that much time between Brave and the release of Strange Magic, ultimately. Yeah, the other thing that Rydstrom was doing at at Pixar was overseeing those um, English-language dubs of the yes. Studio Ghibli movies. Yes, uh, you know, uh, films like The Wind Rises and, yep. you know, all of that. And, and he was still doing absolutely killer work over there. But, but at the same time... Um, you know, Rydstrom w- was was still loyal to the folks at Lucasfilm. In fact, whenever George had a weird project, I mean, as far back as 1987's Captain EO, it's like, okay, sure, I'll help out. So again, it's been 25 years plus at this point since, you know, he, he got his shot at Skywalker Sound. And so if the guy who gave Rydstrom his career its start 
was now having trouble with with an animated feature that he was going to make. Well, Gary knew a little bit about troubled animated features. So late 2011 or early 2012, Rydstrom reaches out to Lucas and they begin working together on uh, Strange Magic. And but, but the problem is at this point, Strange Magic has, you know, it's been 10 years and it's mutated over that time. It's no longer just an animated feature that's based on a Midsummer's Night dream. It's it's now a musical. And not only that, it's a musical that took its inspiration from Baz Luhrmann's Ulan Rouge. So it, it uses pop songs as a way to to comment on the action or move the story forward. And lots of moving parts here, Drew. Lots of stuff to sort out. And Gary comes on board as both the director and eventually, you know, uh, the co-writer of Strange Magic. You know, again, working off of, uh, you know, with, with David Berenbaum, Irene Michi, and again, uh, Brenda Chapman uh, did. And it eventually has become the tale of the Dark Forest Bog King and how that character hates even the notion of love, which is why he orders that all primroses, which, which evidently can be used to make people fall in love, must now be destroyed. But before he, you know, uh, no, wait a minute. After he sets this this planted motion in the dark forest, the Bog King begins to have second thoughts when he inquires a, a a feisty fairy princess named Marianne. And so, okay, we now pivot back to the the press event in New York for Strange Magic, and people are are, are talking about working on this movie. Um, did you get to talk with any of the vocal talent? Or no, I think um, I only talked to Gary. Although I think they were all there for that. Um, okay that press conference but you know there was a uh, there was a certain level of excitement i mean the, you know the other thing that we have to talk about with strange magic is that it was the first fully animated ilm movie since rango in 2011 so there was some excitement there there was some excitement about you know this weird kind of lucasfilm project that they were laboring, I would say, to compare it to things like Labyrinth, which Lucasfilm produced for Jim Henson. I think there was a, a, a general sense of bewilderness, bewilderment, though, just because nobody could really make heads or tails of the movie. The other thing we have to mention here is that Gary comes through the door in late 2011, 2012. And is trying to write the ship, trying to get the story sorted out, trying to move the film forward. But, and and so that's going on spring of 2011, summer of 2011. But the, the thing we have to remember here is on a parallel track, Bob Iger is talking with George Lucas about buying Lucasfilm, which in October of that same year, 2012, uh, Disney winds up buying. Uh, Lucasfilm for four billion fifty million dollars, and you know, and the whole world starts talking about oh, but, 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 you know, Disney, you know, Disney's got Star Wars, Disney's got Indiana Jones, Disney's got Willow, and it's just, and meanwhile, you have all of these people working at Lucasfilm, you know, uh, animation, ILM, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and they're now wondering, well, what does this mean for our movie? Uh, and, and, and George reportedly told Gary not to worry. Bob Iger has assured me that he's going to let you guys finish working on strange magic. And more to the point, once this film is completed, you know, they're going to put the entire mouse's marketing department behind it. Give this thing a big launch, you know, big splashy release. And 
it's all going to be fine. And and for a while there, it it, it does seem like Disney's going to honor you know what they told Lucas. I mean, if you look at the vocal cast, what you had Alan Cummings as the voice of the the Bog King, you had Evan Rachel Wood as Marianne, uh, Alfred Molina as as the Fairy King, and Maya Rudolph as the comic villain Griselda. Um, but but the very thing that you 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 said, Drew, about bewilderment. I mean, this whole time Dizzy's looking at work in progress versions of Strange Magic, and it's like you know from there thinking, you know, Strange Magic is is just strange. I mean, it's it's an animated film with its own unique style and tone, and but at the same time, it's a little too hip for kids, and it's it's a little too silly for adults. So who is this aimed at? And now we kind of have to talk about what used to happen in January in the film industry, which was kind of, this was the dumping ground, right? When, when, you know, that, that, you know, right after the holidays, when all the movies were in theaters and, and made big dough, suddenly in January, you got kind of the oddball little pieces that the studios didn't quite know what to do with, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would argue that is still the case, Jim, unless there, an argument can be made for the beekeeper being a uh, giant <laughs> well no no i mean i i think that streaming has has changed this you know that i would argue that you know uh you know that that given what streaming has done to distribution and and let's also be honest this isn't a great time to gauge that what with that's coming, true you know coming off of the writer's strike and the actor's strike and and you know that just not a whole lot of product to put out there but yeah, Disney winds up in January of 2015, you know, sort of pushing, you know, strange magic out the door. Uh, in fact, you know, what's funny is if, if you talk with anybody at ILM about, you know, a strange magic, you know, they're like, no, it wasn't released. It escaped the vault temporarily and then Disney hauled it right back. That said, you can watch Strange Magic today. On Disney Plus, this this nine year old film over there, by the way, Drew. I mean, <laughs> listen to this words, Helen. It's a romantic comedy that's aimed at the family audience, an, an animated fantasy with plenty of action and adventure. And don't get me wrong, that's what it is. But it's also a CG musical that uses pop songs to tell a story that's set in the world of, of fairies, goblins, elves, and imps, and uh, and as we saw with the Willow series that Lucasfilm produced for, for Disney Plus, eight episode show debuted on, on, you know, on that streaming service, November of 2022, only to be stripped entirely off of Disney Plus by May of the following year, 2023. So, you know, there's an argument that maybe that sort of material has trouble connecting with audiences of today. That said, I, I I I genuinely kind of feel bad for Gary Rydstrom. I mean, after having survived the the Newt debacle and then to, you know, uh, take on Strange Magic, only to then have Disney give it kind of a, a a cursory release. I mean, did you get any vibe like that from him when you were talking with him at the junket that yeah, Disney's maybe not doing everything they could for this movie or no, I think he was just, you know, he, he knew, I think what he was getting into when he signed on for this thing, that it was, it was a train that was leaving the station, but at least he would have a feature credit for his IMDb. I would implore people to watch it actually, because I think it is a pretty interesting movie it is. It is. and it's a I very, visually stunning movie for sure 
Yeah, I, I, I did hour and forty one minutes. Like I said, over at Disney Plus today. Uh, and I, I have to admit, I would be fascinated to have people take a look at it today and understand again when it started off. You know, here's you know George Lucas trying to do something for his daughters, who by the way are forty three and thirty six this year. And again, did he succeed? Did he create a Star Wars for the female audience? And uh, also, just want to recognize that that Rydstrom is still out there, still doing sound design. He he just recently uh, worked with Spielberg on The Fablemans and James Mangold, uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And that said, I I you know again because I'm such a a huge fan of Lifted, I it, I think it's honestly one of the funniest things uh, shorts that Pixar has ever done. I would. I would put it right up there with uh, Knickknack and uh, what is the one about the the clouds that are making the little baby animals? Uh, partly cloudy. Partly cloudy. That 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 that's another one of you know. I just I, I don't think Pixar's made a funnier short. But yeah, I I'd, I'd love to see Gary get another shot at directing a full length animated feature because you know maybe after Newton Strange Magic the third time would be the charm. Yeah, he is a genius and also one of the nicest people ever. So, yeah, we should have him on the show, Jim. I would love that. I would love that. Okay, I've... I will. I'll, I'll send him a note after this, and we'll, cool, cool. We'll... cool, cool. Okay, wasn't that fun? <sighs> I do miss Mister Taylor, but uh, Drew will be back on next week's fine tuning. Hopefully with some animation-related stories that he scored at uh, this year's Sundance Film Festival. But if you two are missing Mr. Taylor, please allow me to direct your attention to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, which Drew does with the equally talented Charles Hood. And speaking of podcasts, uh, we do have a few others here at Jim Hill Media, Disney Dish, the mothership that I do with Len Testa. Uh, likewise, we have Looking at Lucasfilm, which I do with Brian Gaughan. He and I are going to be working on a new episode of that later this week. And we also have the Epic Universal podcast, which uh, should make its debut later this week. Uh, that's me and her Hersey. And uh, that will feature a lengthy interview uh, about the Villain Con uh, Minion Blast attraction that opened last summer at uh, Universal Studios Florida. Okay. Oh, also want to remind you of Len and my newest project, Disney Impact, our first ever video series, which we're producing in collaboration with veteran Imagineer Jim Schul. Uh, this past month's episode was about Mickey's birthday land. Next month's episode, which debuts on Sunday, February 4th over on Patreon, is kind of a sequel to that show. Uh, this Disney Impact will discuss the development and construction of Mickey's Toontown, which opened at Disneyland Park on January of 1993. Let's see. Uh, should mention social media on our way out the door here. If you're looking for Drew, uh, you can find him on X Twitter as uh, Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit. Me, you can find on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. All right, uh, one final favor before we go here. If you could swing by Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning, but also Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. I know Mr. Taylor would appreciate that. 
And I guess that's going to do it for this week. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, you folks take care, okay? <laughs>